Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shift podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show if you are a listener, and welcome to the show if you're a first-time listener. Um, I have found that people who come in to see me who are seeking help for their eating disorder don't always just need their eating disorder addressed. There can be many reasons why people come in and if somebody's coming in for their eating disorder, there can be other illnesses or life stressors that also need to be addressed and considered in their treatment plan. And it's not uncommon for people who have diagnosis of type one or type two diabetes to come in to see me for help with their eating disorders. And I can say that over the years, I have seen how having both diagnoses can make things very confusing and complicated at times. People come in asking me all sorts of questions, trying to understand how to manage both illnesses and really getting frustrated because the treatment for one can sometimes seem to be contradicting or making the other one worse. And, you know, I'm a psychologist and an eating disorder specialist. I don't treat diabetes. So I thought it would be a really good idea to get a guest on here who would, you know, who's an expert and who helps people who have diabetes um, and someone who can come on here and answer some of the questions that I get asked all the time so that maybe some of you out there who have type one or type two diabetes and are struggling with an eating disorder, maybe you can try to make some sense of what you're going through and maybe some of the questions that we're going to be addressing here today will help you gain some clarity about maybe some of the struggles you're also having. Um, So with that being said, I'm very excited to introduce our guest and hear all the things that she has to say today. Um, Esther Tambay is a registered dietitian and certified diabetes care and education specialist who's based in Long Island, New York. She received her master's degree in nutrition with a concentration in exercise science from Long Island University. She also received her bachelor's degrees in nutrition from Long Island University and health science public health from Stony Brook University. She has spent her career working in underserved communities, providing nutrition education and counseling to individuals with chronic illnesses such as diabetes, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, and HIV AIDS. In addition to being a clinical dietitian, Esther volunteers and serves as a mentor for Complete Girls, Inc., which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating, motivating, and empowering young women as well as Diversify Dietetics, which is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to increase the racial and ethnic diversity in the field of nutrition by empowering nutrition leaders of color. She strongly believes nutrition is an important topic for the African-American community, but especially for young women who may not connect with traditional weight-centric messages that they see and hear about nutrition from society. She is committed to increasing awareness of eating disorders, disordered eating, and weight-inclusive nutrition counseling in Black communities. And outside of work, you can find Esther traveling around the world, taking Zumba classes and spending time with her family. 
Well, Esther, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, I appreciate you uh, taking the time. And, you know, for, you know, I did a little bit of an intro on you, but it's always such a short blurb. So uh, for people who are listening, would you mind sharing with us maybe a little bit about how you got into your career and in this place in your life right now? Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, so as mentioned, I am a registered dietitian, diabetes educator located in New York, um, and I'm focused with the weight-inclusive lens. I wouldn't say I was always necessarily uh, weight-inclusive. There was a point in time where I may have believed in a weight-centric model. However, um, growing up, I've had my own struggles with weight, and I actually had, um, and I was very interested in bariatric surgery. So that was something that led me into nutrition, uh, when I realized I actually didn't want to do medical school, but I wanted some more one-to-one -one time with some clients and was more so focused on the why, um, which took me into my road into dietetics. But I also had worked at a weight loss camp where I saw a lot of eating disorders being developed at such a young age. And that's what got me interested in the eating disorder, disordered eating world. Um, and fast forward to now, I'm able to pretty much put everything together as I do work in uh, my own private practice, and I'm able to see all these clients put together. What an interesting uh, background, you know, as you were talking, I was just thinking, so your history of working at the, I guess, these weight loss camps, I haven't really had any uh, podcasts focusing on that, but certainly I've had people come on and talk about uh, their history with weight loss, led, leading into eating disorder uh, behaviors and eating disorders. Uh, now you were working there. Were you working with youth? Like what were the ages you were working with? Um, so I actually started off as a camper when I was in the summer of my fifth grade and then eventually led into working. So I spent 10 years at camp between a camper and a counselor. Um, the youngest age that you can start a camp is as young as eight years old. And you can be as old as plus um, over 21. So the youngest group is, um, yeah, eight. We had a few that might have been seven, but they start that young. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> what? Okay. Like I'm trying to imagine like for these camps, like I'd have heard about them, but are they like day camps, go away camps? What no, you... it's a sleepaway camp. Um, for the most part, they're sleepaway camps, depending on the type of camp. Um, you know, back then there was a lot more, right? Now I don't think there are as many due to many other issues, mm -hmm. but they're usually sleepaway camps and the program can be anywhere. You do a whole summer, which is about eight weeks, and you could do well, maybe two weeks, four weeks, three weeks in between. But for the most part, um, you were encouraged to try to stay for at least eight weeks to get maximum benefits. Um, if not, you know, there's issues with accessibility. Can't Everyone can't do eight weeks because it's also um, very costly. So, yeah, you're there for eight, eight weeks. Um, depending on the camp and the way the program is, like, you're literally – working out or in movement or sometimes physical activity for at least six hours of the day. Uh, food is controlled. So there's many, there's a lot of things with it. <laughs> I know nobody can see my face, but my jaw just dropped mm -hmm. six hours a day, like an eight years old. I'm just, ah. like, yeah. So it's are going through my head right now. It's very intense, but what pretty much leads to, Nine in ten people having a disorder eating or eating disorders that at a, such a young age to think about like eight years old, you're 
you're taught what a diet is or diet soda, calorie free, guilt free. Um, that pretty much was like, you know, what we were allowed to have or, you know, stuff like that. So you already taught about morality of food, good or bad, or how to, you know, lose weight or just the shame that comes with it. So, you know, you had weekly weigh-ins depending on the camp you went to, you're getting weighed in on a, in a bathing suit in front of other folks. And um, it's very problematic, but you don't realize until you leave the environment how harmful it is. But at the same time, if you're a kid in the environment, you don't know better. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that's what led me to this work. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Again, my head is spinning. <laughs> wow, oh Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that could be a, a, a whole other conversation. That, that could be a whole matter. other thing. Oh yeah. my gosh. Like, okay. I mean, just as, as I'm thinking even now about the harm that I think is going to be done with the American Pediatrics Guidelines for Kids uh, with this, you know, quote unquote, obesity epidemic. I'm just, I, and wait, I'm thinking about how harmful this was for kids and you and um I mean I'm thankful for you that you went into the work that you're doing now because of it right. but on the other hand um yeah you spoke volumes about all of the you know disordered thoughts about food and calories and all of this other stuff that at such a young age like like you're not you're not thinking about that but I think also which I kind of like what you said with those guidelines right as a child or a minor, you may not know. So your your parents are that authority. Are you thinking about the parents? So some parents are hoping they're doing well for their child, and there are other parents who are promoting this disorder. Even like you must go to camp and lose the weight. So we we see those type of parents, the ones that are actually like pushing their kids to be in there, and the kids don't want to be there at all, and then the others who are just like, well, I just want the best for my child. What else am I supposed to do? And that's pretty much the same thing that's going on now with the new guidelines, like, well, okay, well, I see a guideline and my pediatrician tells me this is the way to go. It must be the right way to go. So I'm going to go with it versus asking questions and trying to advocate for others. Um, so to me, I see it just being like repeated in different ways. You know, kind of related as we're talking about all of this and like guidelines and you know, medical doctors and things like that. And people just not knowing kind of grasping at straws for, oh gosh, I want to do the right thing. I want to be quote unquote healthy. I want to like make sure I'm following things that are going to be beneficial to me. Um, I, you know, if we take it off of kids right now, I often hear from adults um, that they're very confused and they're hearing a lot of information from their medical providers. If they have a diagnosis of say type one or type two diabetes, um, they are given a lot of information that when they telling it to me, it sounds very eating disordered. It sounds uh, very um, rigid. And actually, it to me, when I have eating disorder patients come see me and they have a diagnosis of type 1 or type 2 diabetes, it's very, very difficult to know what's the eating disorder and what's actually being told to them by their doctor in terms of managing their diabetes. And I don't know what you see in your practice, but to me, it's always this slippery slope of they're confused about which doctor to listen to me or <laughs> their other providers. Yeah, I, and I think that's the, the biggest problem, especially when dealing with the diabetes diagnosis or, or um, you know, the shame of, well, I can't go see my provider until I get my numbers right. So they're willing to do 
all the right things to get this perfect number. But at the same time, all these quote unquote right things are actually disordered eating behaviors that depending on the person with a certain type of diabetes may be seen as a the right thing to do. And then someone else may be shamed for doing that same thing. So um, I think with diabetes, there's a lot of shame that comes in with this diagnosis and the lengths that people will go to just to prove that they are the best type of diabetic um, is alarming. And that's what we should be looking for. When you brought up that that magic word, right, for people who have eating disorders, perfectionism, right? Um, right. And I think it's, at least I hear a lot of, if it's not perfect, I'm a failure, right? If my A1C is high or if it's not perfect or if my, you know, glucose isn't within these ranges or if I'm not eating perfectly or if I'm not, you know, listening to what my nutritionist or doctor is saying, like I'm eating carbs for goodness sakes, like I'm not allowed to, it's like all or nothing thinking, right? This very rigid way of looking at things. Um, yeah, exactly. Which only just leads to the actual eating disorder. Um, for the most part, where, you know, sometimes it goes into like, well, is it an eating disorder or the diabetes management? Which one is it? And sometimes it gets very blurred and they become the same. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why I wanted to really have you on was, you know, for people are always asking me like, well, I, I don't have my eating disorder. I'm just following the guidelines to treat my or manage my diabetes. And I don't know, to be honest, when I hear the things that they're doing, I'm going, I don't think your doctor said don't eat any carbs. Or, I don't think your doctor would advocate that like you're doing the things you're doing. So like when someone comes to see you and they have a diagnosis of type one or type two diabetes, how do you work with them? Um, it's it's really just meeting them where they are, right? So every type one and every type two is not going to have the same individualized needs, right? Their nutrition needs are going to be different. What they're dealing with is going to be different. So it's also it's just really understanding where they're coming from. But depending on how deep they may be in their eating disorder at the same time, it's also being able to understand like what did they understand or hear from the provider. So it was it. I do not eat this or this may cause X, Y, Z. So trying to understand what they understood. Because a lot of times, um, depending on where you are, it just might be too much information. But I think it's understanding like restriction isn't going to help um, all people with diabetes or anyone in general. So is it really don't eat carbs or how can we add in carbs to optimize our blood sugar? So it's just the language also matters at times. But I find that a lot of unlearning has to happen in order for progress to happen. But that also is what helps people trust because depending on where they are with their state of how long they've had diabetes, that failure signs may come and well, I'm not getting better. I've been doing this my whole life, so why not? So it's just kind of really understanding where are they and then moving from there. So. You know, if people, I got, you said the word shame, there's a lot of shame with things. Um, and I agree with you, but I also think there's a lot of fear. Um, people saying, gosh, if I don't get this under control, I'm yeah. going to have all these complications or it's going to be too late. And so there's this almost pressure to like, I have to figure this out now and eat perfectly now. And almost like this convincing of me, like, no, when I don't eat like this way, or I follow what they say, 
all my numbers look better. So how can you tell me that this is eating disordered? Right. Yeah, I think um, fear and shame are two of the biggest words that come in with diabetes. But even with fear, I think also being able to understand where is this fear coming from? Is it fear because a family member had diabetes and they died and they automatically put two and two together versus as providers, what are we doing to explain that from a diabetes diagnosis to death or amputation, it doesn't happen overnight. So we're, we're lacking that education to help those who are diagnosed to understand what actually complications can happen. But a lot of that fear is going to happen overnight because they saw a loved one lose a limb, lose their life, have complications. So they must perfect it where there's perfectionism. We'll see that in diabetes and eating disorders um, comes into play. And, you know, it just becomes a cycle. But yeah, they may see it as, oh, well, I've been doing X, Y, Z and my numbers look okay. So it must be great. But is it really great if other things are happening in your body that are not necessarily um, providing you with good health? So when I can imagine people listening saying, what what other things? <laughs> right. So it was like, well, are you hungry? Are you irritable? Are you restless? Are you not able to sleep right? So, you know, that's lack of energy. You're not eating adequately. So yeah, your numbers may look great in the moment, but this is not, you know, especially with diabetes, your numbers change daily, you know? Um, your blood sugar will spike just for being a human, just because you're dehydrated, just because of, change of weather, time of day, stress. So there's more to just food, diet, and physical activity that are impacting these said numbers that you're also going to extremes to perfect. I love that you said that too, because so often I don't think people think about those other factors that might be contributing other than just, I have to watch my carb count or my, you know, what I'm eating. Um, and so you brought up a few things. So just for instance, how does like lack of sleep or lack of hydration or stress level, hormone levels, any of that like impact the what the numbers they're seeing? Um, so it can, it can vary for each person, but for like for most part, you know, with lack of sleep or even increase of stress that, you know, cortisol being released, same with dehydration. If you're not hydrated, you know, your, your blood glucose is now concentrated. So another reason why, you know, there might be increase in numbers, but even let's look at physical activity, right? So most of the time you'll hear lose weight, everything will be great. In order to lose weight, you need to do some type of physical activity exercise. But most people don't realize depending on the type of exercise, your blood sugar can go up or down. So most of the time walking, you'll see your numbers maybe decrease. But if you're doing strength training, a boot camp class, a dance class, or something of that sort, your blood sugar is not going to go up. Now, if you're the person who's worried about numbers and actively looking at numbers and you continue to see your blood sugar go up, you now start to get frustrated or will now want to go to another extreme because you did what you were told to do, but you're not seeing a change. Whereas it's not necessarily being told um, how individualized things can be, but the fact that there's so many factors of an increase or decrease in the blood sugar. So probably people are, wait a minute, how, how can my blood sugars go up if I'm doing like a high intensity workout or strength training? Like no one's ever told me this, like what happens in the body that that could occur? Right. No, and, and it's, it's for each person. It might be different for some people. They might, you know, um, it may not go up, but then if you're now also a type one, 
before going to work out. Like you have to know the type of activity you're going to do because you now need to make sure, did you give yourself enough insulin or are you going to go too low? So there's a lot of factors to where it's like that's generic general advice that you see on the internet or someone telling you, I'll just do this. Or my mom did this. My brother did that. It doesn't work for everyone. So you really do need to see a provider that actually does this type of work, but also understanding that your body responds to things differently. That's key. And, you know, you brought up to the thing I hate hearing all the time is like, and I never understood this either, is for, for illnesses, I've never seen part of the treatment protocol for any illness saying, oh, if you lose weight, this will cure or manage the illness, right? Um, because I know people of all sizes and weights and shapes have type one or type two diabetes. And yet only the people in larger bodies are told, oh, if you lose weight, this will help manage your diabetes. And my patients who are in larger bodies, ultimately they do believe that they're like, oh, I need to lose weight because I have to manage my diabetes. And I'm saying, well, what if you were in a smaller body? Would their doctor be saying that to you? Probably not. So that's obviously not the treatment or management for it. So how come this is such a pervasive thing of if you lose weight, your diabetes will be managed? Um, I think it's just an easier way, you know, people, there's there a correlation that weight loss may improve something. And I think a lot of people don't realize correlation is not causation, right? So weight loss, weight gain did not cause said illness. Maybe if you lose weight, it may improve some numbers, but it's also you can lose weight and no numbers improve. So it's not something to be, but nine in 10 times a provider will tell you, oh, I think you should get on a diet. And people hear diet and they think, lose weight, eat less, things will get better. And that's where it gets stuck in the head. But there's also this um, notion of thinness equates to health. And in reality, that's not what it is. So once once one is equating thinness to great health or, you know, being superior, that's what one's going to continue to try to achieve because this is what has been said to us. This is what we see in society. This is all we know. Whereas like what you said, there are many people in thinner bodies with diabetes, right? But there are also many people in large bodies with absolute great health. But what does that mean? Like, why, why does that even matter? Like, our body is not indicative of our health status and we shouldn't be using that. I agree with you. That is, that is why, you know, going back to the American Pediatric Guidelines, if anyone doesn't know about them, I've done a podcast. I'll put the link in for that so you know, but that's what's really scaring me is at such a young age, we're already starting in our society to say, if you're in a larger body, we don't care. Like you need to be in a smaller body because we're going to put the fear into you that like, unless you're in a smaller body, you're going to be prone to all of these illnesses that will be so bad for you. And they did mention diabetes as one of them. Like if you're in a larger body, you're going to get diabetes, you're going to get heart disease. You're going to get where, what are they talking about? This is awful. This is horrible. Right. Yeah, where, as you know, the same question as, well, if you're in a smaller body, can you not get these chronic illnesses? You can. Any, anyone can. We're, we're not immune to it. Like, well, you know, you can have, you can eat all the organic food you want and you can still get cancer. You can be as sedentary as you want or not sedentary as you want. You can still have some type of other illness, you know? So it's this whole, well, don't do this and you will be free from disease. Not necessarily true. May you be a 
able to decrease some risk, yes, but then there's also hereditary, environmental, all other things that play a role in said disease too. So that's what it comes down to. Well, in much like you brought up stress levels, right? Like how much stress are people under just trying to lose weight or be in smaller bodies that they're not meant to be in and doing a lot of, you know, I've always said this on the podcast, doing things that are very, quote unquote, unhealthy or very damaging to their health, you know, trying to reach these, you know, unattainable goals that are set by the BMI, which, you know, awful, or by our society saying you must be thin you must be in a smaller body to be quote unquote healthy, but that's not actually creating health. That's doing a lot of damage. Yeah. Damage, more stereotypes, unrealistic ideals that, you know, we're putting out there for people to follow harm mentally, emotionally more. The bullying is increasing. The eating disorders are increasing. The stigma is increasing. Shame is increasing. These are not positive things. Well, and so with that too, I mean, I'd love to get your, uh, your take on this. So, you know, these new diet type two diabetes drugs that are now, I mean, I'm seeing them not even as labeled as that they're labeled as weight loss drugs. Um, these and big, the Wagovis, the, all of these new things that are coming up. Um, it seems to me that these medications are basically saying like, we don't care about what damage it's doing to your physical health and well-being and to the inside of your body, like losing weight at all costs. People know these negative side effects. They're coming out and yet that's all that matters. It's like, but that is a horrible message. I don't know how you feel about this, doing this kind of work and what people are coming into you with now that these things are so like prevalent. Well, the way I see it, I mean, if you're thinking about like presenting someone, they, they've been out, right? It is a type 2 diabetes medication. So there are other diabetes medications and GLPs that are out there that a side effect of it that you may lose weight and you may not. So if you're working with someone that has diabetes and was put on it, like we know that this medication will potentially have some weight loss effects to it. I think the real issue is when we're now using said medication for a vanity issue. Um, but I think we also need to be mindful of there's some people who have may been in a larger body for so long, and this is now their final thing to finally have access. You know, what does being thin mean to them? For some of that, that's having access to clothing, having access to jobs. Having, so, you know, this is where body autonomy comes in. I have no problem um, informing of pros and cons and side effects of it, but at the end of the day, I cannot tell someone, don't, don't take this medication based on what you see, what's going on. But I will inform you. And if you are going to take it as we work together um, and you do have diabetes, I know that this can be um, a side effect. But there's also other side effects that come with this. So how do we manage GI issues or insomnia or not eating enough or how do we make sure? And so those are other things just having to be aware that there are going to be people who are taking it um, who do have diabetes and they're going to be people who are seeing it as this is their way of finally having access as living in a larger body for so long and could not get access to certain things, whether that means actually being able to shop in a regular store, um, getting these job opportunities, whatever the case may be. So also understanding um, where they're coming from, as I typically do work with people who have been in larger bodies for a long period of their life and 
being able to relate with them in that sense. So just being able to provide empathy and compassion for those who are finally feeling that they finally found the answer to something that's been bothering them their whole life. And yes, obviously living in our fat phobic society is awful right. toxic. And, um, you know, my biggest fear is, you know, when the things I'm reading anyways, is when people go off of these medications, I mean, this is not sustainable weight loss, right? This is, that's the problem with it. And so kind of to your point, if this is what they're coming to you and they're dealing with, like, how do you manage like, okay, what happens when you go off this medication? Right. I think it's having those conversations, but kind of like what I was saying, but like even same with those guidelines, it's it's history repeating itself. It's just something new now, right? So this year it's Ozempic, Monjaro, and all that. But so how many years ago was it? You know, everyone was on Fenfen and wanted to do that. Like so, it's just repeating. It's just a new thing. So as long as we continue to live in this fat phobic society, where we're also deeming thinness as um, health. There's always going to be something that comes out. It's just for us as providers doing this work, being able to support our clients and help decrease any harm that we can. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, you also, I was just thinking about this. You mentioned like not eating enough. Um, you know, there's so much, again, like <laughs> all these things come in waves, right? Um, there's so much misinformation out there, uh, again, about like this carb fear that's been around for the longest now. I wish it would go away. But, um, you know, so when someone has, you know, diagnosis of type 1 or type 2 diabetes, and then they get confused, like, oh, I'm hearing out in the world from all these influencers and experts saying, oh, well, carbs are bad or intermittent fasting is the way to go. It's so, quote unquote, healthy for you. It's so right. And what about someone who has, you know, diabetes do they need to eat frequently do they need to do that to stabilize their blood sugar like what if somebody does say take on like intermittent fasting or what are those fad diets that are now out there um diabetes or no diabetes one should be eating frequently or enough to have adequate nourishment um fad diets are pretty much what it is right it's a fad so it may feel great in the beginning or you might be seeing these results that you've been wanting because essentially you're restricting something so you're eating less of something or someone's telling you to eat more of this. One one diet is low carb, the next diet is all animal products, right? One minute it's saying no fat, but then the next diet is saying put butter in your coffee. So which one is it? So like after a while, we have to really think about like, what are we doing? Um, same with intermittent fasting, you know, essentially what you're doing, you're just not eating for a certain amount of hours. That's that's what you're doing. You're restricting for X amount of hours, but at the same time, you know, the research on intermittent fasting, there's not that much out there for women and what that actually means for women, whether that, you know, plays a role in your menstrual cycle or things like that. So just knowing that these fads are fads for a reason. They're not permanent. They're not sustainable. They're legit a fad. So having to think about that. Um, but as a person with diabetes, you absolutely need carbs. As a person without diabetes, you absolutely need carbs. Carbs provide us with fuel like our brain to think like we run on carbs like you know carbohydrates are fueling your brain so that's why you know if you don't eat enough or you're doing low carb you start to get headaches irritable those are all signs of potential hypoglycemia which means your your blood sugar is low so you still do need to eat carbs diabetes or no diabetes yeah i think that's the 
the biggest thing that people are still so afraid, like, oh no, I'm doing so great if I'm not in, um, and also, you know, I always say like, for instance, the first meal of the day is breakfast is breaking the fast. Like you've been fasting all night, sleeping, like your body's going hours and hours every day without right. food. Like, do you need to keep fasting more? <laughs> it's counterintuitive. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and that's literally what breakfast is bringing the fat. So I know some people feel like, oh, well, I have to eat a certain type of food for breakfast. It needs to be the egg and all that. And I tell my clients, like, listen, if that's not what you eat in the morning, that's perfectly cool. Eat what works best for you in the morning to nourish yourself. Not everyone's going to do eggs or the oatmeal. Like, you can still eat other food in the morning and it's still, quote unquote, breakfast. You're literally just breaking the fat. But what is providing you nourishment? That's what's important. So I'd love to get your take on this. I get so many people stuck. I'm not hungry in the morning. I just have my coffee. I, I just, I'm not, I, and I hear this from so many people. Like if someone comes to you and they say like, I'm not hungry in the morning. I don't want to eat breakfast. I just have coffee and eat like, you know, sometime later, 11, 12, whatever hours after I'm up. Like, do you hear that often? And if so, like, what's the conversation you have with people? Um, I do hear that often. And I think it's a matter of, like habit and finding out like how long to do. So it's reminding them that coffee is not a meal. Um, it becomes very habitual when you get, you know, I'm going to drive to Dunkin' and I'm going to get my Starbucks and drink it. But also coffee is caffeine. <laughs> um, it's also suppressing. So you may not think it's happy. So, you know, there's the difference of listening to your hunger cues versus, well, this is what I always do. Um, you know, and there's also practical hunger. So you know that you may need to eat because I'm not going to eat again for until whatever time it is. So even if it's a, a smaller snack, I would prefer you for you to do something like that. Maybe you can't go a full-blown meal in the morning, but you're a teacher and you get your period off at a certain time. So just being mindful of that. But the one thing I always say, coffee um, is not a meal. You know, it will dehydrate you and just all the other things to make you feel like you're full, but it's not substantial as a meal. Yeah, I just I thought I would ask the expert here. <laughs> I know what I say, and I'm like, okay, let's get this from you. Uh, I know people oftentimes just like, oh no, I'm, it's not going to happen. I'm just not like, why do people not feel hungry first thing in the morning? Um, I think it might also just be like, you know, their body or what they're getting up to. Uh, um, I'm some mornings I just don't want to get out of bed. The first thing I'm not thinking about is food. Like, but it's also being realistic. Like, are you gonna wake up every day? and eat within 20 minutes of waking up or is life happening? Like did maybe your child miss the bus or your alarm went off. So there, I do get it. Like, but if you've been doing the same thing for X amount of years, it's now habitual. It's now just trying to be like, well, all I ate was coffee. And then 6 PM, you're like, Oh wait, why am I hungry? And then potentially have a binge. Well, you didn't eat anything all day, but your coffee was enough for you to make you feel like you ate. Like, so I think it's, also, just, you know, being able to know the person and get an understanding of their habits and what usually works for them. Um, so, is now, do you specialize in working with people who have a diagnosis of diabetes or is there, like, you work with all sorts of people who come in and have nutrition-like needs and questions? Um, so, it's... I will see people with diabetes as I'm a diabetes educator. So that's just one thing I do enjoy. I did love that as my clinical work, but also disorder eating, eating disorders. Um, I do see people with renal disease or um, to an extent. 
And those who've had bariatric surgery, um, I see them post-bariatric surgery um, as they still need nutritional support. Okay, that's great. Yeah, I just had a whole podcast on bariatric surgery. So uh, anyone listening who listened to that, you know, um, <laughs> they might need some nutritional support afterwards, right? I'm not a fan of that surgery. However, uh, if you've had yeah, a, it, a, it, a it has said, its moment. So I usually like because. For some to get the surgery, you need to have a dietitian sign off prior. So I don't necessarily do that part. But after, you know, a lot of those clients, they're at risk for an eating disorder. They're at risk for malnutrition. They don't know how to actually nourish themselves, provide good enough protein, understand their vitamins. So that's where I come in in that part. I know weight loss is going to happen because they had the surgery prior to me. But all that other stuff, can also cause more complications. So the goal is how do we prevent complications and keep them nourished? Well, I love that you're doing that work because I do, you know, I worked in a hospital for 15 years and I saw so many complications. I don't think there's enough of you out there to help people afterwards to really manage all of the malnutrition and like you said, complications. So um, yeah, if we have more of you, that'd be great. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, so let's say people did want to work with you or they wanted to get in touch with you. How can they do that? Um, I'm on Instagram as et.therd, or they can email me at etambynutrition.com and, or contact form on my website, estertambynutrition.com. Okay. Um, you've given like a lot of great information. I really <laughs> appreciate it. Um, is there any yeah. final words before we end? Um, no, I just appreciate you having me on and just with nutrition, there's so much out there. Um, it does not hurt to see a provider and get multiple opinions if something doesn't feel comfortable with you. Absolutely. Again, Esther, thank you so much. Welcome. Thank you. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.